Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners, joining you once again for our wonderful weekly dose of podcastly goodness. And today's pod, I often say, oh, it's going to be a fascinating one today. But one of the real benefits of hosting this podcast is I get to choose the guest. And when I see a good guest, I go, oh, I'm going to snaffle them and uh, get them on the pod and chat to them and generally just get them on their soapboxes. And that's what today is as well. I have Dr. Marcia Goddard, who is a neuroscientist and chief culture officer at the Contentment Foundation. Marcia, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Uh, fabulous. I'm really, really pleased that we've got some time to chat because, and I'll, I'll explain the context for our listeners in a minute as to why I've dragged you onto the HR on the Offensive podcast. But before I do that, I always love having a partner in crime, as you regular listeners will know this. And so I've dragged along another lacer. It's not really dragged, though, is it, Liz? Because no. this, these are going to be subjects that you quite enjoy. <gasps> I love it. I love the fact that I've got this opportunity to talk with Marcia. Yeah. So context for our wonderful listeners. In June of this year, I attended a conference which run by Avanta, which is the Gartner company. And it was a CHRO's Chief Human Resources Officer of CPO Forum. And Marcia was on stage and she did a piece around how to build resilient cultures and also the importance of psychological safety. And when we had the uh, conference itself, she was afterwards absolutely flooded by a load of people. So I totally chickened out and didn't go and talk to her because she was too busy. But what I did is I then messaged her afterwards with good help of the folks at Avanta and said, please, 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 please come on our podcast. So we're delighted to have you on, Marcia. I want to actually delve into some of the bits that you talked about during that session and also the importance of psychological safety. But before we get on to that and to stop this becoming a Chris Howard monologue show, <laughs> I'm going to ask, start asking you some questions. And let's start with a little bit about you and your background for those who maybe haven't come across you before. Sure. Yeah. So I am a neuroscientist by training. And I think almost a decade ago, I decided that academic culture wasn't my thing. So I went into the business world, got into corporate consulting, and my expertise is how to build a sustainable high-performance culture. So what do you need in your people? What do you need in your HR strategies, really, to, to really bring out the best in people so that they can thrive and they can perform to the best of their abilities? And I'm fortunate enough to be able to work with companies all over the world on this topic, and it, it includes well-being, diversity, and inclusion, all the topics that I really love are part of what I do every day so it's amazing I know we were just talking about it offline but one of the you just mentioned there about the psychological safety and I was just really fascinated about what you I know you have a love of, of Formula One and uh, I was reading one of your articles about the fact of what an impact it can have if a team isn't in the right space between that dynamic between the support team and the driver and you posted just recently I think about about it can we finish that call? I was just getting into that conversation and then we dived <laughs> into the podcast can you tell us a bit about it yeah so I've I've, I've had a good look at how Formula One teams operate because when you think about high performance culture, for me, Formula One teams are the absolute pinnacle of high performance. They have to perform to the best of their abilities all the time. It is quite a cutthroat industry. And yet people who are in F1, they thrive, they love it. They either leave very quickly or they hardly leave at all. So I was fascinated by that. So when you look at Formula One teams, they have to innovate. Every couple of years, the FIA, like the governing body of motorsport, they give them a new bunch of rules and they say, hey guys, why don't you just build a new car? And the engineers and, and the aerodynamicists and everyone has to figure out how are we going to do that? So when you think about psychological safety, which is the ability to speak up, the ability to be open to 
say things that might be stupid. That's what you need in an environment like that. So I write a lot about Formula One because I love it. Also because I think that businesses can learn so much from the way things operate in there. If I'm a white collar worker, you know, I work in HR for a, a large organization. I'm listening to hearing about F1 and thinking, yeah, but does that really apply to me? So what principles, can you just talk a couple of principles that you think a HR person who's working in an insurance business listening to this going, yeah, but that's F1. You know, that's a totally different culture environment of the sort of thing that I'm used to. Yeah, well, F1 teams are massive corporations with, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 people working for them. So they are just as much organizations as those insurance companies. But when you work at an insurance company, you feel probably more detached from the outcome of the work that you do. And I think that's more visible in F1. It's about becoming world champion, regardless of whether you're front of the grid or back of the grid, all of them want to be world champions. So I think that's one thing that F1 has that most Corporations do not. But when you think about performance, when you think about bringing out the best, is a lot that we can learn. So there's a lot of autonomy in F1. There's psychological safety. And the one that I love the very most is that one of the core principles of culture in Formula One is the no blame philosophy, which means that when somebody messes up, when a mistake is made, you attack the problem and not the person. That's relevant everywhere. So Yes, you're not going to be driving a Formula One car. You're not competing for a world championship, but you want to be the best at what you do. And if that is what you want to do, then this is how you can do it. One of the areas that I'm really fascinated about in terms from a cultural perspective is about that ability to be able to, and you mentioned back there, Marcia, about just no idea is a bad idea, you know, and that goes along the same lines as that actually you can kind of make mistakes and you're not blamed for them as long as obviously show that learning as well. How important do you think that is to businesses thriving and and having innovation and creativity? I think it's crucial, even if you do not want to innovate, even if you're like, no, we want to keep things as they are. You're out of luck because the world is changing and you're going to have to be innovative in the way you do things in order to keep up. So I think it's crucial for anyone, even if it doesn't feel that way, you need to deal with change. You need to deal with things that are happening in the world. So you need this in your culture as well. So one of the things that I read about that you talk quite a bit about is around that change, you know, any type of change within an organization causes stress. We're human beings. We we don't deal with change brilliantly well the majority of the time. And actually that the impact actually of psychological safety and um, having a good culture and recognizing the impact that stress does, uh, that change uh, does have on, on people's stress levels. Can you tell us a bit more about your research around that? When you look at that, from a brain perspective, change is the one thing that our brains do not like. Because if there is change, that that means that there is unpredictability and our brains are predicting machines. That's all they do every single day, just predicting what's going to happen next so that they can keep you alive. Because that's the only goal that our brain Survival. Survival, exactly. So when there's a lot of change and things become unpredictable, that's not great for your brain. So it will produce a stress response. That's the primitive part of our brains. Basically, there might be a wild animal lurking behind a corner somewhere going to eat you. So you need to be on edge. You need to be alert. And that stress response in itself, I think stress gets a bit of a bad rep. It's not necessarily bad for you, but the interpretation that you give that stress response, that's what's going to determine the behavioral outcome. And that goes towards positive or negative. So it's basically framing change and stress as threatening or as challenging. 
If you go towards that threat interpretation, which is where your brain will want to go, that's like the default setting of your brain is that's threatening. So you need to work hard to con con yeah. contract that. If you're there and you have that in your culture, then you get rigidity. These are the, I call them the yes, but people. Those are the people that, like I said, you know, we don't want to change. We don't want to innovate. Why do we have to do that? We've always done it this way. It's a fear response, isn't it, to a yes. certain extent? And what, why I really love actually this is that from a change perspective, so when we're delivering on change programs, if you can help people understand that it's not something to be feared or even just give an idea of what the vision is and, you know, what's to be expected, then people potentially aren't in that fight or flight mode and therefore they're more open, open to... Uh, engaging and embracing the change as well do you find that from a kind of there's a neuroscience aspect of that around how leaders and companies can support people in that way to reduce the stress and reduce that kind of physiological reaction to change I think we shouldn't even think about it from the perspective of reducing the response but more reframing the response reframing yep yeah and I think that's where psychological safety comes in and that is quite hierarchical because if the top of the company doesn't create psychological safety, it's very difficult to do that from the bottom up. So that's where leadership comes in. That's, I think, the 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 job of the organization, if you want your people to thrive, is to create that psychological safety. Because what happens then is if people feel psychologically safe, then that change is no longer threatening. It becomes challenging. And then people become resilient. They become creative. They, they can apply their critical thinking and their problem solving. And it's a long-term skill set, isn't it? So, I think. Yes. I actually wanted to ask a a question, Marcy, because when you were talking about those those stress levels, I've just written it down. Like, can you actually, as an individual, train yourself to change that? Aren't you just wired the way that you're wired? I know that there are some people you said like they're the yes buts, but aren't some people just wired that way? And how can you change that within an individual? Yeah, no, you can definitely change that. Luckily, we are not our brains. I mean, our brains are a big part of who we are and they determine a lot of our behavior. But you do have just think about it this way. If you think something, you don't have to act on it. So that means that there is a difference between your brain and your behavior, right? So you do have an impact there. In general, if you want to regulate your own stress response, there are just well-being practices that you can use. So things like mindfulness or, or just going for a silent walk, visualization, if you're nervous about something, breathing. Just taking a deep breath, making sure that you breathe right. Those are individual things. But when you look at it from a group perspective, from a team perspective, that's where those culture elements come in. So if you create psychological safety, the whole team's relationship with stress changes, which has that positive impact. So there are many things that you can do. And of course... Some people are, are a little bit further along on the rigidity spectrum than others. So it will take them a bit more time and it will be a bit more difficult for them. But that's why you need to do it together. That's why it needs to be part of your culture. You can't just say, hey, from now on, this is what we're going to do. No, you need to show it. You need to lead by example. And then even the most rigid person will start to see possibilities. And that is important, leading by example. I want to take us back to the actual Ivanta conference, if that's all right. And there was a particular mm -hmm. section that you talked about, which was like uh, it was the am I safe here part. Yeah. Because what you did is you broke down kind of like the almost the scientific response within a person's brain as to, you know, what happens without psychological safety. Can you just sort of relive that for our listeners, if that's all right? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about safety, we often think about safety from the perspective of physical safety, right? So when, as a woman, if you're walking down a dark alley at night, 
you're very much aware of what is going on around you in case you need to act. That's your amygdala. The amygdala is a tiny little brain area in the primitive part of our brains, the oldest part of our brains. And what it does continuously is scan the environment looking for threats. This is a familiar concept in terms of physical safety, but the same thing happens when it comes to psychological safety. So if you start a new job, you walk into the office for the first time, the very first thing your amygdala will do is scan the environment to sort of assess, okay, how safe am I here really? Can I be myself? Can I speak up? Same goes first time you meet your manager, when you have a one-on-one -on -one meeting, right? when you have your first Friday afternoon drinks. Every single time you're in those situations, your brain will scan the environment. And if there is psychological safety, then everything is absolutely fine. Your amygdala will just be like, okay, all good, carry on, and nothing will happen. But if there is low psychological safety, then your amygdala will be like, uh, uh, it's a uh, DEFCON one, we need to do something. <laughs> you create that stress response and a lot of bad stuff kind of happens in our brains when we're in that negative stress response. The first thing is our prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of our brains, it becomes less effective. And the prefrontal cortex has skills like problem solving and critical thinking and impulse control. Those are all the skills that you kind of need in order to be effective in your job. So you become less effective in what you do. Second thing that happens, when you look at somebody's face, when I'm looking at you guys right now, you have, well, you're smiling now because I'm because I said I'm looking at you. But often <laughs> when people are listening to someone talking, they have a neutral expression on their faces, right? So they're not smiling. They're also not looking just neutral. In a psychologically unsafe environment, your brain will interpret those neutral faces as angry, disappointed, uninterested. So it has a negativity bias. Now think about that from the perspective of hybrid working. When a lot of our meetings are virtual and all we have to go on is what's happening in someone's face. That can lead to misunderstandings and that can really, really hamper effective collaboration within teams. Another thing that happens, we have a very, very important brain area called the hippocampus. It's a tiny brain area, also very old, and it regulates our memory. So it's where our long-term memories are stored initially. It shrinks, it becomes less effective, which decreases your learning ability. In a world that's constantly changing, you need your learning ability in order to keep up. So all of these things are negative. And in, in the long run, stress, cortisol, all those hormones, they have a negative impact on both your physical and your mental health. And all of that is in an environment that has low psychological safety. So it's not just about the effectiveness of the work or the productivity of your people. It has a massive impact on your entire culture, on how well your organization does and on the well-being of the people in it. I find it just so fascinating. And one of the one of the areas that we've talked about a bit in previous podcasts actually is, is how much it's a learned behavior. So how much the behaviors can change. And you talked about the fact that you need to kind of keep that the amygdala muscle or the, you know, you need to keep that kind of working. But also how much of it is is kind of set in stone in terms of the way people just are and actually when when you so we've talked about recruiting people particularly into a business to help create a certain culture we've, we've kind of covered that topic before and I know some an area that you've been um, involved in 
and worked on is around the assessments and kind of gamification and a focus actually more on the kind of cognitive and soft skills when you're recruiting or obviously from a learning perspective. Can you just tell us a bit more about that area? Yeah, absolutely. So I was the head of research at a serious game developer for a number of years. So I got really into gamification, into how does it work? Why does it work? And how can we use that in business? And I'm the biggest fan of gamified assessments because in general, I've always thought that assessments are, they're not just boring. They're also very ineffective and, and people use them the wrong way. So it's like the perfect storm of useless content. (laughs) And if you switch to gamified assessments, which in general are more focused on behaviors like collaboration or mental flexibility, like those kinds of skills, those skills I feel are more relevant for the world in which we live than let's say personality elements mm. like neuroticism that used to be like what everybody was looking for. If you were a neurotic person, then you were no good at your job. And if you were conscientious, then you were very good at your job. It's not like that anymore. So you need to look at more of those cognitive and behavioral skills. And then if you want to assess them, I always say, what's more effective? Asking people, are you a good problem solver or giving them a problem to solve? And in gamified assessments, you're not asking them anything. You're just giving them a challenge. You're asking them to do something in a way that is engaging and intrinsically motivating, which brings out their best performers and is more related to the actual behavior that they will show on the work floor. Yeah, that's brilliant. And and as you say, it's not about the end result, is it? It's more about actually the process that they've gone through to get there. And how much do you think that that is? So one, one of the findings, I think, was around that it lent uh, a, a kind of informed an understanding of the creativity and uh, critical, critical thinking. But one of the other areas you mentioned was around ownership. And I was really interested around that. So is that about because it's so directly linked, I think, to people embracing change and being kind of getting involved in driving transformation. Can you talk to me a little bit more about us? Oh, sorry, Chris, I forgot you were here for a minute. I was just <laughs> going to, sorry, not just me. Talk to Chris too. And yeah, just about the ownership piece. I was fascinated by that. And do you mean the relevance of ownership for like the 21st century workforce? Yeah. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. So just, yeah, in terms of actually that the soft skills can be an indicator of ownership. And I wondered if we were talking about ownership as in accountability. Where does that bit fit in? Ownership is an interesting one. I think ownership is a very, very crucial skill for the 21st century workflow. And it involves being creative. It involves critical thinking. It's saying, this is mine. I'm going to do this and being accountable for the end results. But you can't do it alone. And that's why I've always sort of struggled with the concept of ownership because I think it's an important skill. And I'm on the advisory board of an assessment company and they've asked me, can we measure this? And I didn't really have a satisfying answer for them because if you don't get autonomy, you cannot show ownership. So it goes hand in hand with the environment in which you operate. So it's a fascinating one, but I haven't figured out yet how to measure it. Surely some people as well work better in the different types of ownership or autonomy because there are some people that prefer to just say, I'm going to take something piece of work I'm going to craft it myself and then bring people in collaboratively whereas other people work better where it's like actually can you start that piece of work and then I feel more comfortable when I have a level of ownership or accountability when I'm part of it so I don't 
yeah, I'm not sure. Is that, is that is that more about? I guess I'm intrigued as to whether that's more about that you work better as a team. Yeah. Is that it's the dynamic that maybe even and this is probably old school too. But if your energy is charged when you're in a group of people and you can co-create together, versus actually you're better off kind of in a you know on your own reflecting, focusing, and then turning something out. Is there? I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure that there is some sort of brain works around that, Marcia. Well, but, I mean, you're both making the case for diversity aren't you <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. oh, there's so not one thing that. there's not one yeah way. i think diversity in innovative environments again on this work floor on in this world in which we live is is crucial and that's not about your skin color or about your gender it's about what's going on wired. inside your brain yeah. how are you wired how do you operate are you more like the individual who was like i'll take this i'll do it first or are you the one who says okay i'll take your work and then i'll have a look and i'll add to that you need both of them on your team. Yeah. If you just have people who will, who take full ownership of everything, nobody's working together anymore. You need both. Yeah, and I guess as well, if we bring it back to when we were, obviously we started talking about the psychological safety and things like that, if people feel comfortable, if they feel like their organisation understands and is willing to embrace that lots of people work in different ways, it just builds that level of personal sort of psychological safety that you have, right? Absolutely. And when the topic of diversity came up, DEI is a very important topic in the world of HR these days. Whenever I work with organizations and they say, we want to become more diverse and inclusive, I say, okay, so how safe are you? That's where it starts. That's the foundation of everything. You cannot have inclusion without psychological safety and you cannot have diversity without inclusion. So it really is the foundation on which a diverse and inclusive organization is built. And is that something, do you think, that can be assessed? So is there a way of knowing where an organisation is with that? Does the assessment exist? For psychological safety? Yeah, psychological safety and that kind of, yeah, how that is driving that inclusivity and that type of culture. The data is often there already in organizations because in every engagement survey, psychological safety is it's one of the topics, obviously. It's sometimes difficult to get an honest picture because I do a lot of culture analysis where I will go into an organization, I will qualitatively speak to people, so do interviews with people to give more context to the engagement survey data that they already have. And quite often the picture becomes slightly different from what the numbers say. So the numbers might say, yes, we have relatively high psychological safety, but then when you talk to the people, it's like, okay, it's relatively high, but the issues that you do have are quite severe and you need to address them. So yes, you can definitely measure it, but I think it's always good, even if you don't do a full analysis, if you're a leader of a team or if you're in an HR department, to look beyond the data and really go into teams and talk to people. Don't rely strictly on your on your data. But it is fairly easy to do a survey. There are many surveys out there for psychological safety and inclusion that you can use, but just add context to the data. I just often wonder, you know, as well, when you've got the data and you're kind of working with business leaders around what the data is telling them, how well do people actually understand what we're truly talking? I mean, it's psychological safety is a bit, it's bandied around a bit, isn't it, at the moment? Mm. But talking to you, it's just so much more deeper and it's that neuroscience, the physiological part of it. I'm just not sure how well that's understood. Have you have you picked up on that, Marcia? It's, it's, it's keeping me in business. So... Um... <laughs> I think, I think there's definitely some work to be done there. I think everyone's intentions are good, but often engagement surveys are done. And then it's like, oh, we need to do something about this. 
but that's where it stops because they nobody really knows what to do because it is so much deeper than everybody thinks it is yes, and it really you is. end up doing a, a master class or you invite a speaker which is all fine and great it's a good start but you have to go a layer deeper than that so i think people might understand the data because there are organizations now startups that do all these surveys and they make it very easy digestible but i think the follow-up after that so what do i do with this data that's i think where the understanding is lacking a little bit and majority of the work that we do is around psychological safety and we have a whole certification program to sort of help people understand that it is so much deeper than they think it is it's not just about bringing your whole self to work it's more than mm. that just as you were talking earlier and as you both got both of you guys were talking earlier about the gamification stuff one question that just popped into my head with the types of businesses that you speak to are there some organizations that or industries that tend to be able to embrace some of the work that you're doing and stuff around the gamification things more than others in your experience oh, i mean game developers are fairly well yeah <laughs> <laughs> but generally speaking i think I call them 21st century companies. So the companies that haven't been around for that long yet, 10, 15 years, they're in their scale-up phase. The founders are usually younger. The leadership teams are younger. And this is not to say that old people don't get it. But yeah. if an organization has been around, we work with one organization that's been around since, I believe, 1873. Wow. It's a lot more difficult for an organization like that to change course than it is for an organization that's been around for 10 years for 15 years. And those newer organizations were founded in a time in which this was already happening. This was already a topic of conversation. So yes, they get it more than the bigger ones, but that's not because the bigger ones are dumb or uninterested. It's just because they're bigger and it's more difficult to make change. And I think yeah. it goes back to that point that you made originally around, it's almost like an unlearning, isn't it? Organizations have to unlearn to relearn really what it is all about in terms of what informs culture and that it is definitely much more of the soft skills and the cognitive skills now. Yeah. And if you've had a habit for 150 years, it's a lot <laughs> exactly. more difficult to unlearn. There's <laughs> a lot to unlearn. Exactly. Definitely. Definitely. Well, and actually that links back to the next question I was just going to ask you we're coming towards the end of the pod but um and what you talked about in the uh, presentation that you did is kind of like the what can you do next because that's often a question that we ask our listeners it's like there is obviously so much that people can take away maybe you're sat listening to this working for an organization that's in a more traditional industry that is 150 years old and you're thinking all right okay, okay. all of this stuff is really interesting but what can i do next like is there any bits of advice that you would give me and apart from i mean i'm assuming it's a given that you say well come and talk to me <laughs> <laughs> I was not going to say that actually. I, I hope that people will naturally just gravitate towards that. But thank you for thank you for bringing it up. Yeah. No, I think the first and most important bit of advice that I can give would be to first analyze. Don't just start doing things. First, have a look internally. Where are we right now? If you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going. So that's step one. But then once you're ready to start making those changes, I think from a behavioral perspective, the things that you want to teach your people, the things that you all want to, the skills that you want to develop together is to frame work as a learning experience so that, you know, the concept of mistakes is embraced. It's all right to make mistakes, not to make them multiple times. You have to learn from them, but it's not disasters if you do make one. It's to look not just at the outcome of the work, but also at how is the work being done? Because the way you've been doing things, obviously, if you're a leader, it brought you success because you are where you are, but there might be other ways to do things as well that are more effective. So keep looking at that process. 
it's being vulnerable, saying, you know, it's I I might also not always know the answer to this question, or right now I'm a little stuck, I'm not doing so well. Like acknowledge that within yourself. It's about being interested in in other people's perspectives on things. If you want to innovate, you need to, and this is something that you have to actively do. It's not like you can say from now on, everybody is allowed to speak in meetings. It won't happen. You have to actively do that. You have to actively go there. And then there are some people who are more comfortable, for example, speaking up over email or speaking up in a one-on-one. So also use your empathy to look at your team and be like, okay, who prefers what type of interaction to make sure that you get all the, the best ideas. And last but not least, if you have a brain, you have bias. And the biggest barrier to change is the fact that it's very difficult for us to acknowledge that we have biases. So you want to acknowledge that, step one, we all do it, it's fine. And then step two, challenge those biases. Just because this is your truth doesn't mean it's someone else's truth. And the actual truth is somewhere in between. So that is a really crucial step to progress. That's absolutely fantastic. Marcia, it has been eye-opening and wonderful to have you on the, the podcast. Genuinely, it has been. And I, once again, just like the uh, presentation that you did at the Avanta conference, I found it always illuminating and insightful. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to have you on. You're very, very welcome. Thank you and, so much. It was and Liz, absolutely fascinating. thank you yeah, very much for you. joining me. Loved it. Thank you. Yeah, of course, you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You know my spiel by now. If you've listened to this podcast more than a few times, we're on all of the usual platforms that you get podcasts on. You can also access all of our content and our back catalogue of blogs and videos and all of that good stuff on the Lace Partners website, which is lacepartners.co.uk forward slash insights or if you go forward slash podcast you'll see the whole list of all of the podcasts you've got as well and we also have just set up a linkedin group as well for the podcast so we'll we'll just be dropping in each of the uh, additions each week into that linkedin group and if it's free for anybody to come along and join the, and start a community talking about some of the interesting conversations once again thank you very much from guest marcia and from liz and from me it's thank you very much for listening and uh, hopefully we'll see you next time on the hr on the offensive podcast Bye-bye.